Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Law firms can be incredibly lucrative. Top national and international firms are generating billions of dollars in revenue and many millions in profits per partner. But today we'll talk about another aspect of law firms, their unique structure and the unique risks that they present for law firms to not only break down, but to implode. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. We're joined today remotely by Yale Law Professor John Morley, who's written on this topic. John, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks very much. It's always great to be here. We're speaking remotely. You're today in your offices at Yale Law School. Yes, on a rainy day in New Haven. So John, we're going to get into the weeds, but first off, why do large and by many respects profitable law firms, why do they collapse? Law firms are inherently structurally fragile because they're owned by their workers. Um, If law firms weren't owned by the partners who practiced at them, they might encounter financial distress as many other kinds of businesses do, but they wouldn't blow up as swiftly or as spectacularly. Basically because the partners are the owners of the firms, um, they're vulnerable to spiraling cycles of decline in which successive waves of partners depart in a in a cycle that looks like a run on a bank. Why don't we tee up the topic with an example? I said up top that there are unique risks, there's unique structural concerns about law firms, but let's get into the let's get into a concrete example. Uh, there's been some spectacular uh, explosions of law firms, even powerful law firms, uh, in our lifetimes. Yeah, there's been a bunch of really big ones recently. Sedgwick, um, before that there was Bingham McCutcheon, before that Dewey and LaBeouf, before that Heller Ehrman and uh, Brobeck, Flager and Harrison. There's been quite a few of them over the years. And these names may not jump out to our uh, youngest viewers, but some of these firms were uh, prestigious national uh, and international law firms. Yeah, some of these firms were really, really heavy hitters. Bingham McCutcheon was a very large law firm. So was Dewey. Uh, and some of them were quite quite prestigious. Many of our graduates here from Yale Law School went to both of those firms. Um, and they were, at many points in their lives, quite profitable. I guess, first off, you know, companies fail. You know, I just was looking at the fall of Bed Bath & Beyond. But if companies fail, why shouldn't law firms fail in, in some number as well? I think companies don't fail in the peculiar ways in which law firms fail. One of the peculiar features of law firm collapses is that almost every law firm that's collapsed has done so at a moment when it was still formally profitable. Um, when it was still, it was current on all of its debts, maybe it didn't even have a lot of debts, and yet it still collapsed. Contrast that with many, many operating business businesses which can thrive for years, sometimes decades, while consistently losing money. It wasn't until just a few years ago that Amazon started turning a profit. 
Before that, it lost money every year, sometimes billions of dollars a year for a couple of decades. Delta Airlines, every airline you can think of, most of the car manufacturers have been bankrupt, but no large law firm has ever gone through bankruptcy and managed to survive. Some of these firms are literally profitable up until the day that they close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, take, take Brobeck, for example. Brobeck had way more debt than the average law firm. Uh, this was a firm that collapsed in San Francisco after the dot-com boom turned into a bust in the early 2000s. They had a lot of debt because they had um, taken on a huge new office lease. But they were still uh, current on all of their debts. They were still uh, making distributions to their partners. They were not insolvent in the conventional sense that, say, Delta Airlines was when it filed for bankruptcy. John, I want to talk about profitable when it comes to law firms. This is something when I talk to my, my business friends that, they, that kind of blows their mind. It's the way that we describe profitability of law firms. You know, if I'm, if I'm looking at Exxon and their profitability, that's after paying even, you know, senior employees. When it comes to the profitability of law firms, we're leaving out a pretty important chunk of the expense, which is the salary of the partners. Yeah, there's two ways to think about profitability in a law firm. One is economically, another is formally or legally. So in economic terms, a business is only generating a profit if it's um, returning more in revenues than it's costing in terms of the, the market value of its assets. And because all of those law firm partners could leave to go become general counsel at another company or partners at other law firms, there's a certain market value to the labor they're providing to a law firm. And a law firm is only profitable in economic sense if it's generating more in profits per partner than, than its partners could get by moving to another firm or going and becoming general counsel somewhere. But there's a formal sense in which a firm is profitable if its revenues exceed all of its formally stated expenses. And in accounting terms, the distributions of profits that we make to partners are not expenses of a law firm. So a good example would be Brobeck. The partner's compensation had gone down below the point, below the levels they could receive by moving to others' firms. In that sense, it was not economically profitable, but it was still current on all of its legal obligations. And as an accounting matter, it was still generating profits. And uh, let me say, Joel, this kind of touches on a deep truth that makes the, proffer, the problem of law firm collapse even more puzzling than it would seem otherwise, which is that the capital structures of law firms are, in formal terms, freakishly robust, way more robust than the capital structures of ordinary companies, which makes their sudden and spectacular collapse. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, we'll see a successful company uh, out there with tons of debt, huge debt stacks. Um, whereas you look at a law firm and it may be generating literally billions of dollars that's immediately taken off the table and put into the pockets largely of the partnership. Yes. Yeah, so a law firm's largest expense, partner compensation, isn't technically expen an expense at all. It's a discretionary distribution of profits, which the firm could choose not to pay. So like take Apple. Apple's been sitting on gazillions of dollars of cash 
for a very long time now. It's just chosen not to pay out its profits. Well, in theory, a law firm could choose not to pay out its profits too, and it could save that money to pay all of its creditors, and indeed many of them have done that. So they have this incredibly robust capital structure, and yet they still implode. John, I'm going to characterize law firms, and I'd love you to, to correct my understanding, but to some degree, law firms, at least in my mind, are cool clubs of high-earning lawyers who've managed to attract other high-earning lawyers, and they work as long as they remain cool and everyone's high-earning. I'm not necessarily going to disagree with that, Joel. Many law firms are cool, and many of them are high-earning. Not all of them, but many of them. <laughs> and I think being around other successful people is often a major part of the attraction. But when I think like more deeply, what are the economic motives that cause lawyers to combine into firms? I think there are two answers. One is they can spread fixed costs. Um, if I need the services of an administrative assistant for 20 hours a week and you need the services for 20 hours a week, we can combine and hire a single administrative assistant. If we need a copy machine, right? So sometimes those efficiencies can be more substantial than you think. The reason that Dewey and LaBeouf combined into a single law firm was that Dewey had a long-term lease and it had a declining headcount because many partners had already left the firm even before the merger with Dewey and the lease before the merger with LaBeouf. And the lease was at a low rate. It was a great lease. So they're sitting on all this space that they can't use but want to keep. LaBeouf's lease was about to expire and reset at a much higher rate. So there were huge amounts of lease payments to be saved from combining into a single firm. The other reason lawyers combine into firms is because there are cross-selling opportunities. So say I'm doing a public company merger. Well, I need regulatory advice from the lawyers who have expertise in the industry of the companies they're combining. I need tax advice. I need securities regulatory advice. Maybe I even need corporate law advice. And so if I don't have all of those other lawyers with other expertise together with me in the same firm, I could get those same forms of expertise by going to another firm, but I can't share in the profit. I can't charge a fee to these other lawyers to whom I'm referring business. So you're leaving money on the table by not being a full service shop. Yeah, if I'm generating business for other lawyers, I want to capture a piece of that value. Suffice to say, Joel, it's more complicated to take a referral fee than to just do it within the same firm. Another reason, John, is uh, regional. I, I've, I've seen firms make acquisitions because they want, I don't know, more of a presence on the West Coast or... They want more of a presence in the United States. Perhaps they're a large global firm. Yeah, so, so often what we describe as regional expansions are really um, expansions into different practice areas. So if you're, say, Wilson Sonsini, and you have a great portfolio of private company tech clients, you're also going to want the ability to do public securities offerings because at some point your clients are going to go public. And for that, you're going to need a New York office. So, of course, you want to open up a New York office as well. There's a couple of actual rules that have led to these kind of unique structures. One involves the requirement that law firms give you your money back. 
if you need to leave, you can take your equity and run. Yeah. Lawyers are not allowed to sign agreements that restrain the practice of law under the model rules of professional ethics. So what's the actual rule, John, that's, uh, that's constraining these non-competes? It's rule 5.6 of the model rules of professional conduct. I can't sign a non-compete agreement. And, and I also can't do other things that would replicate a non-compete agreement. So among other things, that means that if you and I are partners in a law firm together and we both contribute capital, you're required to give me back my capital when I leave. That redistribution can be spread out over time, but not too long, or at some point it becomes a kind of penalty. This makes lawyers very different from other professional services providers. Accountants sign non-compete agreements all the time. Doctors sign non-compete agreements. Engineers, architects, they all sign uh, non-competition and non-recruitment agreements. Am I right in understanding that the purpose, you know, it, it may, you know, it may be to benefit lawyers, but the purpose ostensibly is to benefit clients, is to say, hey, we want to be able to do what's best for our clients, and if the client could be benefited by uh, a lawyer switching to another shop, then lawyers shouldn't be able to restrain that. Yeah, the idea is to make sure that clients can continue any representation that they're satisfied with, even as their lawyers move around. I don't want to hide the ball here. The, one of the other interesting nuances of law is that in most jurisdictions, only lawyers can own a law firm and you can't take outside investments. And I think in some ways that, that, that really changes what the law firm model looks like. But, you know, sticking with the, the, the ability, the inability to add uh, non-competes or to restrain movement is this sometimes the reason why law firms are unwilling to make long-term capital investments? Because, hey, if they have to pay everyone out when they leave, what does that do when you're investing for the long-term? The knowledge that a partner can leave at any time makes it hard to invest in a relationship with that partner. Um, for example, suppose that the partner is trying to build a relationship with a given client and the firm is debating whether to open a new office to be proximate to the headquarters of that client. Or suppose the firm is debating how much to spend on uh, Knicks tickets or opera tickets or golfing or whatever it is. Or whether to hire a new associate or partner who has an expertise that would be uniquely valuable to that client. Well, the firm could make that investment. The partner could get the benefit of that investment by just walking out the door and taking the client relationship with her. It seems like it makes a lot of sense not to constrain lawyers' movements, but it's gonna limit the ability for firms to really invest in those lawyers or to invest in themselves as a firm because they always have to deal with the, this flight risk. Yeah, people often say, oh, well, this rule is ostensibly there to protect clients, but really it's there to protect lawyers. And my reply is, does it really protect lawyers? In some narrow sense, it does. If I'm unhappy in my relationship with the firm, then sure, yeah, I'm glad to be able to leave the firm. On the other hand, if I'm in a firm with other partners and they can freely leave and take with them value that I've created by investing in their practices, it's not obvious that I am better off, even if those departing partners are better off. John, why don't we see firms 
building up more of a war chest. Why don't we see at least successful firms saying, look, we've had a killer year. Uh, why don't we put 10% of our, I don't know, $6 billion into the, the Kirkland Investment Fund and, and use that to make ourselves even richer without billable hours? It's a good question. Occasionally, the firms do that, but far more rarely than you would think. Um, I was once interviewing a law firm partner at a medium-sized regional firm, and he said, we don't even have art on hanging on the walls because we don't want to hold significant capital assets. The reason is that there are generational conflicts within law firms. If people are constantly coming in and out, it creates difficult challenges about how to value things that can't be liquidated at the moment of entries and exits. Hmm. If there's a piece of art hanging on the wall and we don't know how much it's worth and we don't want to sell it, then when Bob retires and Sally comes in, how much does Sally pay and how much does Bob get? Yeah. This is an, another really interesting aspect of law firm structure, which is you're you're kind of pushed out at some point, and so is your equity. Yeah, there's a debate about the status of law firm partners under employment law. They're owners, not employees, so are they covered by uh, aspects of employment law that prohibit discrimination on the basis of age? It's a challenging question. Um, but as a practical matter, many firms have policies that either push people out or force people out when they hit a certain age. And is that 60 or 65 or? The early 60s. And these can be, even the rainmakers of the law firm you know, could say, look, you know, you've, you've been incredibly valuable, but it's time to go. Yeah, yeah. And often people will be pushed out at moments when they're still adding a lot of value to the firm. Um, Firms can be more or less thoughtful about how these transitions occur. It's very important to try to provide departing partners with incentives to transition their business. Um, in this respect, ownership interests in a law firm are very different from ownership interests in a conventional investor-owned firm. I am not going to be a shareholder of General Motors, for example, forever either because I might sell my shares or because I might die. Um, but that doesn't really matter because the price at which I can sell my shares will reflect everything that will happen even after I sell them. So I care about things that happen two years from now, even if I'm selling my shares today because the buyer will inherit my position and will likewise care about stuff that happens two years from now and will pay a price accordingly. By contrast, when I leave a law firm, my shares are extinguished, and the price I get doesn't really reflect the expected value of those shares in the future. I might get a pension, but it'll usually only be a fraction of the value of my shares, and it may take the form of a fixed interest rather than an equity interest. In other words, it will be an imperfect proxy for the future value of my shares. Do we know, John, if your pecking order, I suppose, is reflected in your retirement benefit. I mean, you mentioned that, it's, you know, we talked about how it's at a certain age, you're 
you're politely shown the door at a at one of at one of the more kind firms, and then you're set up with a, a with a pension or an annual payout. But does that depend on how much you were making or your relative your relative amount of equity in the firm at the time of departure? It varies from firm to firm. Pension po- policies vary a lot, and many firms now are moving away from pensions. The the the, the mega trend is clearly away from pensions. Um, Often pensions are structured as a portion of the last few years of a partner's compensation. So Mm. a person whose compensation was 2 million a year earns more in pension than a person whose compensation was 1 million a year. Sometimes the pension lasts for a fixed period of time, 10 years, 20 years. Sometimes it lasts for the partner's lifetime. Sometimes it lasts for the joint lifetimes of the partner and the partner's spouse. First of all, I find it inherently interesting, but it's interesting because, as you mentioned, uh, Steve, who's about to retire, he may not want the firm to buy the building. He may not want the firm to set up uh, in, you know, an internal venture capital fund that may take uh, many years to return an investment because the doors... Uh, open and starting to open for him and he knows that he'll have to walk out in a year or two right if i'm 65 years old and i know that i have to retire next year i don't give a damn about what happens three years from now (laughs) and and i'll be damned if somebody's going to take my money this year to invest in something that will produce profits in five years when i walk through the law firm model with some of my more savvy business friends and they look at the amount of cash that's just taken in and then immediately off the table, it, it really is unique in, in American business today. Yeah, I think other worker-owned professional services firms often do the same thing, um, although perhaps not quite to the same degree. What are you thinking of? Are you, uh, are you talking of accountancies or consultancies? Accounting firms are increasingly transitioning towards investor ownership in part because they're able to reinvest and to retain their earnings in ways that law firms are not. Well, let's talk about worker ownership. That's not by choice. Well, it it is by choice if you want to look at it in the broader perspective that lawyers as a whole have decided to implement rules on the community. I believe this one is Rule 5.4, which in many states limits the ability of who can own a law firm. Maybe you can explain what the rule is and, and then we'll talk about why it matters and the resiliency of the structure. Yes, Joel, Model Rule, 5 point, Model rule of Professional Conduct 5.4D provides that a lawyer is not allowed to practice in a professional corporation or association uh, organized for profit if a non-lawyer owns any interest in that organization. So, It doesn't formally require a law firm to be owned by the lawyers who practice in the firm, but it does require the the firm to be owned by lawyers, which as a practical matter usually means the lawyers who practice in the firm. This is super interesting because it takes off the table the ability to have an equity investor come in in a time of of growth or an an equity investor to come in in a time of distress. Yeah, law firms can take on debt capital. 
but they can't take on equity capital. Um, and they can require, they can take equity capital from their own partners, but they can't take it from an external non-lawyer investor. One interesting thing about debt at law firms is that at some levels, there may be personal liability on that debt. Yes, yeah, sometimes law firm partners will personally guarantee contracts. This isn't necessarily because the common law of general partnership requires partners to be liable on debts, because most law firms now are organized as limited liability entities. Um, instead, it's usually because creditors insist upon personal guarantees as a condition for extending credit. So as, as Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison descended into chaos, the bank creditors insisted that the partners personally guarantee the loan as a condition for not calling the loan once the covenants had been breached. Okay, so that was in a case where uh, perhaps there was already some red flags or some indications of concern. Um, but I could also imagine, you know, you and I have a law firm and realistically, you know, we're, we're, we're partners, we're both equity partners, but you're bringing in 90% of the business and a bank may say, look, we know that John could leave at any point. We're going to need John to sign for this because he's the one with the real revenue. Yeah. Banks will sometimes do that. Another thing they'll sometimes do is they will build in covenants into a loan that causes the loan to accelerate if more than a certain percentage of the partners depart in a certain period of time. So if more than 10% of the partners depart in a given year, for example, um, the loan automatically gets called. The objective, like as with many loan covenants, is not necessarily to immediately call the loan. It's to provide an occasion for renegotiation. And during those renegotiations, the bank will often say, okay, 10% of your partners are now gone. I want to hold the rest of you hostage by requiring you to personally guarantee these loans. One more uh, interesting aspect of, of law, and particularly big law today, is what I see as an even heightened interest in one metric, and that's profits per partner. You know, I think of it a little bit like uh, the U.S. News and World Report. I don't want to I don't want to hit on that since you're Yale Law School and you just pulled out. But at some point, U.S. News and World Report was really the only thing that colleges and to some degree law schools were focused on because it was driving the market. Similarly, and actually even more profits per partner at law firms today have become uh, seem to have become an incredible driver, you know, moving uh, laterals, even at the highest levels in ways that we didn't see in the past. I guess, first off, you know, what are you seeing? And is this something that's new? When I talk to lawyers about this trend, they always say it began with the publication of the American Lawyer Numbers. But prior to then, nobody knew what any other law firm partners were earning. And people also didn't care all that much. They valued a variety of things that they got from their partnerships, not just wealth, but also a nice office, 
pleasant colleagues, a good firm culture, interesting work, and so on. But once people learned what other partners were making, they started moving in order to make more. And that then forced each firm to fork, focus more on profits in order to retain its partners and keep them from moving. I think one relatively recent trend is the increasing fixation on profits per equity partner rather than profits per partner. We're seeing the rise of um, non-equity tiers of partner, and that helps improve profits per equity partner by basically reducing the denominator. And maybe we should we should focus in it for a second. When we say non-equity partner, in a legal sense, it's not really a partner. It, I mean, they're not they're not an an actual partner in the entity. They may have the title, but they're not taking partnership. They're taking salary. Yeah, within the meaning of the common law of general partnership. These people aren't partners because they're not sharing in the residual profits of the enterprise. I, I should say that most law firms these days are not organized as common law general partnerships. They're organized as LLPs, for example. Um, but yes, un, even under the law of LLPs, they're not formally partners. Sometimes it, it makes a lot of business sense to be able to to put partner on your on your website or business card or um, to let clients know that you're valued for your expertise. Yeah, there's a lot of marketing value to be able to, to, to calling yourself a partner, just as there is to calling yourself the head of the M&A practice group. Although it's generally true that equity partners earn more than non-equity partners, I often stress to people that there's no necessarily necessary correlation between equity holding status and partnership status. I could earn $20 million a year in a fixed salary and not be an equity partner. Indeed, I would rather make $20 million a year in a fixed salary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I sign up as well, John. <laughs> I'd be happy. But, you know, I could imagine, you know, for a particularly famous partner who perhaps is stepping out of public office, you know, the former attorney general uh, wants to come into private practice. You know, we can make you an equity partner, and generally that's what's done. But we could also just say, hey, look, uh, Attorney General, we'd love to have you. Here's a, an incredibly generous annual comp that we'll make sure that you get. Yeah. It's very common to guarantee the level of a partner's compensation for the first two or three years after the partner has moved to a new firm especially if the partner is coming from the government and is starting a practice from scratch. It's also common to guarantee a partner's compensation in order to prevent him or her from leaving at a moment when the firm is in distress. So Mort Pierce, who was the major rainmaker at Dewey, hmm. famously demanded to have his compensation fixed when Dewey began to decline. Well, I think we've done a good job of laying out some of the some of the structural issues that that impact law firms at times of failure. But why don't you walk me through how law firms actually collapse? The law firm tends to collapse in a series of steps. 
It usually starts with the departure of a senior rainmaker. The reason for that rainmaker's departure could be any number of things. He might have died. He lost a power struggle for chairmanship of the firm. He runs for Senate or he just gets offered uh, more money elsewhere. But for whatever reason, he leaves. And once he leaves, he leaves a bunch of, he'll usually take a handful of other partners and associates in tow. As a result, the firm is stuck with a set of fixed expenses, all that office space, but a lot fewer revenues. And as a result, it might be a little more profitable. It might be a little less profitable. The firm might be a little less profitable, that's right. Um, and then another senior rainmaker will leave, perhaps for independent reasons, but perhaps because that rainmaker realizes that now the firm is less profitable and there will be less money to go around. So then that person leaves, and then another person leaves, and another person each time uh, making the firm less profitable and thereby making still other partners more likely to leave. Somewhere along the line, the lenders will trigger a covenant on the loans. Uh, the loans will prohibit more than a certain number of partners leaving over a certain period of time. The landlord might have a covenant in the lease saying the same thing. So then the landlord and the lenders will show up and say, you know, guys, it's time to renegotiate this thing. We want personal guarantees. So then some of the remaining partners will look around and say, well, gosh, I'm making less money. Now I've got a personal, personal guarantee all this debt if I want to stay. So I'm going to leave too. And what you have in the end is a spiraling cycle of departures that represents, that looks a lot like a run on the bank. Yeah, I was thinking of this when I was uh, looking at what was happening at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, you have basically a branding issue and then you have this prisoner's dilemma where if you're stuck holding the bag, you are out of luck. You could, you know, maybe the government doesn't come in and, and bail you out like they did with, with Silicon Valley Bank. You may end up, A, having difficulty to find a, a new job, and B, personally taking over liabilities that used to be shared by a bunch of your partners. It's brutal. Bank regulation is designed to make it attractive to stay for depositors to stay. Um, law firm liability is designed, it would seem, to make it attractive the for opposite. partners to leave. Yeah, so let's just talk about three forms of liability that all punish a partner for staying. So one is unfinished business liability. Um, there's doctrines in many states that say, if a partner remains a partner at a firm up to the moment it dissolves, then any billings the partner generates, even in the future, on matters that were open at the time of the dissolution, have to be returned to the old firm. So let's say I'm representing a client in a lawsuit. Not only do I have to share with the old firm the, profit, the, the billings that I generated but not yet collected at the time the firm dissolved, but even any future work I do on that same lawsuit after I've left the firm, I also have to give back to the estate of the old firm. Crucially, that rule only applies to partners who stay until the moment of dissolution. So again, you don't want to get stuck with the bag here, especially if there's, if there's any debt. Yeah. Another problem is fraudulent transfer liability. So it's Hornbook law in bankruptcy 
that if a debtor makes transfers less than two years prior to the filing of bankruptcy, and the debtor was insolvent at the time it made those transfers, those transfers can be clawed back by the estate of the bankrupt firm if they were made without receiving reasonably equivalent value in exchange. So to put it very simply, if a firm gives away stuff that it doesn't have to give away on the eve of bankruptcy, then the bankruptcy trustee can claw it back. And um, it's widely understood, again, it's Hornbook law, that distributions of profits are fraudulent transfers because you don't have to pay profits. Mm. Debt payments are not fraudulent transfers, but wages are not fraudulent transfers. But distributions of profits are. So this unique aspect of law firms, well, not you said you mentioned that other professional organizations may be similar, but unique vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a company. You know, if I, if I take a salary, the bankruptcy court isn't necessarily going to come back and say, you know, I need to pay that back. Um, but if I take my profit, which in all respects includes all of my compensation, includes what would normally be a salary, they can come in and, and claw that back. Yes. Yeah, so when General Motors declared bankruptcy, everybody kept getting paid. Whereas um, when Dewey and LaBeouf declared bankruptcy, the bankruptcy trustee could claw back all the distributions of profits for partner from the partners that were made in the months leading up to the collapse. So let's, so let's just like put ourselves in the position of a Dewey and LaBeouf partner. Um, if I think there's a 50% chance that the firm will file for bankruptcy in the next year, then I basically have to discount all of my expected compensation over the next year by 50%. Hmm. So if some other firm comes along and offers me 75 or 90% of what I'm currently being paid at Dewey, well, then I'll gladly take that offer because it's better than 50% of what I'm earning at Dewey. Wow. So it's not even, they don't even have to come in and offer more. Yeah. They can come in and offer less. And that baked in risk will make a, a rational, a cold rational actor uh, likely to leave. Yeah. So a firm ends up having to pay not merely market rate, but more than market rate in order to keep its partners. It's just devastating. And of course, if, if we pay you more than market rate, like money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, where is it coming from? I'm going to have to get paid less than market rate. And when that happens, I'm, I'm out the door. And now things are even worse than they were before. There's another form of liability, Joel, called preferential transfer liability. So when a debtor approaches bankruptcy, there are obviously lots of different creditors. And um, I, as the debtor, can choose to prefer some creditors over others with the result that some get paid in full and some get nothing. Well, in order to prevent that and to ensure that creditors get paid more or less equally, um, bankruptcy law imposes what's called preferential transfer liability. And any debtor, any creditor who gets more than he or she would get in bankruptcy on the eve of bankruptcy can sometimes be liable to cough up some of the money. So here's another problem. Remember how we talked about how law firm partners can get their capital back as they leave? Well, that's a debt claim. And if the firm pays it all out in full, as the partners leave one by one, the partners can now become liable to the firm on prefer preferential transfer liability. So, but if I get out before the statute of limitations, like in, before the statute of limitations period, right? If I get out far enough in advance of the bankruptcy, preferential transfer liability won't catch me. So it's another reason to want to leave early rather than stay late. 
And for the attorneys who are listening, let's take a quick break so you can get credit for this conversation. The code for this one is 21233. Again, that's 21233. And now back to the interview. Doesn't it feel like a prisoner's dilemma that was invented in the classroom? It's so kind of brutal to the to the to those who are stuck behind and and yet if people held firm perhaps everyone might be better off yeah it's a classic it's a classic coordination problem um you know returning to the position of that hypothetical doing the buff partner i've if i think there's a 50 percent chance the firm will collapse then i'll discount the firm's compensation by 50 percent. but if we all stay it's not gonna collapse, but because we can't all agree to stay, yeah. then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, this is something we talked about earlier, Joel. Joel, people say that the right to leave a law firm at any time is good for lawyers, but it's not obviously good for lawyers because now it makes us hard to commit to a collective bargain. Even though we might all collectively be better off by staying, we can't commit to do that. I think of this as a clear analogy to the bank run, which is no bank, I mean, pretty much no bank can sustain a run up until a certain point. If you're making any loans, you're going to get caught up if if 95% uh, of the people withdraw. And similarly, no law firm you know, very few law firms can sustain uh, the departure of 30, 40, 50 percent of their lawyers, given that they have some obligations that are that are fixed. Yeah. People often say to me, oh, it's not a problem that partners can leave because they, t they you don't have to pay them anymore. So the firm's expenses or at least its profit distributions decline even as its revenues decline. The problem is that expenses don't decline as fast as revenues in some cases. You may have uh, five associates to every partner and those associates need to be paid. And you know the ability to terminate on a dime 100 associates uh, may be, it, first of all, it may not be possible based on their contracts, I'm not sure. And second of all, it may be incredibly costly. Yeah, costly in reputation, costly in terms of severance, um, costly in terms of damage to the culture of the firm. Yeah, and then we can add on things like office leases. But also think about pensions, right? The number of retirees stays fixed, even as the number of partners declines. L leases, uh, loans, all those things stay fixed, even as the number of partners decline. So I wonder if law firms ever bake that into their pension agreement, which is, hey, look, if we're, you know, yeah, we're rolling in it today, but if at some point our revenues drop or our partnership, there's a flight risk, then we have the right to terminate our pensions. If they don't do that, they should. Because by the way, that's what lenders do. Um, lenders always have covenants that say if more than a certain number of partners leaves, then this loan will be uh, due and payable immediately. John, one interesting aspect that we touched on, but maybe we could talk through a little bit more, which is the way that the math adds up means that it's always the best 
you know, the highest performing lawyers that have the most incentives to leave. And then once, I mean, you, you mentioned it up top, but that if a big rainmaker leaves, that has a, a disproportionate impact on the next biggest rainmaker. It has a disproportionate impact on the, on the entire firm, but it also, it also makes staying a lot harder for the other top performers. Let's think about two sides of the equation. There's what a partner is bringing in and also how much damage the partner does when he leaves. Um, so the partners who are most likely to leave are the ones who are making the biggest net contributions to the firm, right? If we could hypothetically calculate all that I contribute and all that I get, the ones who are most likely to leave are the ones for whom that balance is least favorable because those are the ones who are most likely to earn more money by going elsewhere. If I can leave with $50 million of business, then another peer firm may be willing to cut me a bigger check. To be really precise about it, Joel, even if I've got a huge book of business, I still may not leave if I'm getting paid more than the book is worth. And that does sometimes happen. Sometimes even big rainmakers will be overpaid. So what we're really mm. looking at is whether you're under or overpaid and also how marketable are you. Interesting. Even underpayment is not perfectly correlated with tendency to move because I may be contributing a lot to this firm and getting less, but if I were to move somewhere else to a firm that, say, didn't have the same mix of expertise that wasn't as appealing to, to my client, I might not contribute as much, so I still may not be likely to leave. Um, but there's a correlation. People who are underpaid will often be the people who are most likely to leave. But then there's a second aspect to it, which is how much damage is done when the, when the partner leaves. So even if the amount that the partner contributes and the, the amount that the partner gets are in perfect equipoise, I'm generating $10 million of business and pulling out $10 million in expense and compensation. Still, my departure might hurt the firm um, because the firm has made a lot of investments, a lot of fixed commitments necessary to generate that business. It's hired a bunch of associates and staff and paid for office space for all of them. So in that sense, the bigger rainmakers almost always do more harm than the smaller uh, generators. Sometimes the departure of one partner can have damage, you know, whether it's investments that were made in that partner's brand, or maybe we, we built out an office in Palo Alto for, for Catherine, and now Catherine's leaving. We're not going to get that money back that we, we built to, to launch that Palo Alto brand. But it may also cause Jimmy and uh, Hassan to ask for more comp to keep them to stay. Yeah. So as the firm's revenue declines faster than its expenses, the total value of its profits goes down. In other words, the size of the pie shrinks, uh, even when we consider it relative to those who remain. Um, so we get two dynamics that can cause other partners to ask for more. For starters, the other partners will say, well, I want to make the same as I did last year. And so now that the total pie is smaller, I need a larger proportionate slice. But there's an even subtler and more problematic dynamic, which is that now there's a bunch of risk 
that diminishes the value even of the pie, the shrunken pie, because now there's an increased chance that the firm will collapse and the remaining partners will bear a bunch of personal liability. So even the same amount of money, let's say a million dollars, a million dollars is worth less to me after you leave, Joel, than it was before you left because now there's a chance that that million dollars is going to be clawed back. The same amount of money is worth less. So do we ever see partners, I mean, again, these are very sophisticated legal uh, minds uh, for the most, you know, for, in many cases. Do we ever see partners say, look, I see the direction this is going. Let's, let's get together and rethink. And if we need to wind up the business, let's at least do it in a slow, steady way that doesn't leave anyone uh, burned as a result. Yeah, different firms handle it in different ways. You know, before Dewey collapsed or just after Dewey collapsed, I think a lot of firms went into insolvency and dissolution pretty naively. Um, they did things that they, they, they just made obvious mistakes. Here's a simple one. Remember that unfinished business liability only applies to partners who stay until dissolution. Well, dissolution is a voluntary decision made by the partners. Dissolution is a, is a matter of partnership and organizational law, not bankruptcy or creditor's rights law. A firm only dissolves if the partners vote to dissolve, usually. So, so firms would do things like they just dissolve before everybody had gotten out and then triggered a mm. bunch of unfinished business liability. <laughs> So firms have learned to be a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, Bingham McCutcheon, for example, um, negotiated a deal with Morgan Lewis by which all of the exist, all of the remaining, not all, most of the remaining partners of Bingham just moved to Morgan Lewis and they left Bingham as a burnt out shell that the creditors couldn't take much from. Hmm. Just a much savvier way to handle it. Other, other things firms do is they go around and they, they try to survive the storm. They cut expenses really quickly. Um, they cut partner comp really quickly. They um, try to persuade people to stay. There's lots of ways you can persuade people to stay. The um, one thing you can do is merge. So um, when Patton Boggs was on the ropes, uh, it engineered a merger with Squire Sanders. The chair of Patton Boggs went around and spoke to every single partner and said, look, I know you have a right to leave. I'm going to, I'm going to try to find a merger partner. If you can just hang on, we can spare you some of the pain by finding a merger partner. Totally reminiscent of banks, by the way, which also mm, often search yeah. for merger partners as they're on the ropes. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch makes no sense at all, but for the fact that Merrill Lynch would have collapsed without the merger, the Bank <laughs> of America. And, you know, sometimes firms just appeal to people's uh, goodwill. They say, look, you know, we've been in this together for many years. We're, let's, let's stay in it together. If you leave, you're going to hurt not only yourself, but a bunch of other people. And, and, and they, they, they try to use the same what I call leather cords of friendship and loyalty that bind villages and families, organizations which are also not bound by contract, but which often manage to stay together and coordinate, notwithstanding the individual incentives to break apart. 
Well, yeah, maybe before we wrap up, maybe we can talk about some ways. We talked about how firms are kind of face this inherent risk and how some of the legal uh, obligations on attorneys kind of accentuate these risks. How, how have you seen firms take steps to mitigate it? The fundamental feature that makes law firms vulnerable to collapse is the fact that they're owned by their partners. This is what exposes partners to these peculiar forms of liability that punish them for staying. It's also what makes partners economically sensitive to each other's departures. Um, and so firms can do things to diminish the partner's sensitivity to other partners' departures. So one thing they can do is try to ensure that client loyalties run to the firm rather than to individual partners. Hmm. So if a partner leaves, the clients don't follow. Another thing firms can do is to try to penalize partners for departing by requiring large capital contributions and distributing them only very slowly after partners depart. Um, you know, you can drag it out over a period of a few years, which makes leaving a, a little bit less attractive. Um, firms can try to construct their expenses in modular ways that make them easy to cut. Rather than having one giant office lease, it's often better to have several smaller office leases. Um, these, are, these are all mechanisms that firms can use. Another thing firms can do is they can waive unfinished business liability in their partnership agreements so that it doesn't apply. So it makes it a little bit less painful if you got, if you got stuck uh, at the end. Yeah, not only does it make it less painful if you got stuck, but it also diminishes the incentive to avoid getting stuck at the end. But remember that unfinished business liability punishes the people who stay and thereby encourages them to leave. If you don't have unfinished business liability, that's one less reason to leave. Why not build up a little pool and say, look, this is, I don't know, pick a number that would be relevant. This is $50 million that we'll never touch that's there for the ride or dies who stick it out in case something goes wrong. This will make them whole. And as a result, you know, it's a bit of our own version of FDIC. First off, the other creditors would seize it. Um, and second of all, Rule 5.6 would probably not allow it because it would be a restraint on competition. Like for, for me to hold a bunch of your money hostage is effectively a non-compete agreement. Even if it's, it's literally set up there as a, not a non-compete, but a, um, a non-explode. I mean, think about it from the perspective of a, of, of a bar, of, of the bar ethics regulators, right? A non-compete agreement takes the following form. If you do X, I will take money from you. The thing you're, the proposal you're describing, Joel says, if you do X, I won't give money to you. It's kind of the same thing. All right. So there may be, there may be some, some delicate lawyering that would, would need to go into, uh, yeah, maybe we're buying implosion insurance rather than we're setting aside large pools of what ostensibly should be your money. Yeah. And every time I make this analogy to a run on a bank, somebody says, well, what about an FDIC for law firms? <laughs> and it's clever. Uh, and in fact, I had some former students who decided they were going to try to make an insurance product 
sell it to law firm partners and insurance against law firm collapse product. The problem is that there are really um, serious adverse selection and incentive problems. What we're talking about here is not insurance on a fixed amount of money, which is what we're talking about with regard to bank deposits. What we're talking about here is profits, which by definition are variable and uncapped, and also dependent on an individual partner's efforts. Um, and what exactly am I, am I insuring? Um, um, because a partner's compensation could go up or down based not only on the survival and overall performance of the firm, but also on the efforts of that individual partner. Indeed, they could even go up or down based on changes to the firm's formula, even when it's healthy. Um, so, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a hard thing to implement in practice. Well, I guess one last, one last point before, before we uh, wrap. Uh, what about some of these new structures and then these new rules that are allowing non-lawyer ownership of law firms? Do you think that's something that would just change the ball game or, or it could help in some ways? And I'm, I'm referring specifically to you know, places like Arizona or countries like Australia that are allowing non-law firm ownership of firms, a uh, non-lawyer ownership of firms. If, if a firm could in fact be owned by non-lawyers, it would be much less likely to collapse in a spiraling cycle of decline. In fact, the only large law firm that has ever gone through a bankruptcy and survived is a firm called Slater and Gordon, which did business in Australia and the UK and was owned by investors. And the reason that firm was able to survive um, insolvency was that its business was fundamentally healthy. Um, it became insolvent because it had acquired this ancillary operation that served auto accident victims that ended up, being, the business it acquired ended up being a big accounting fraud. So they just like had a bunch of bank debt, but the, but, but the, but the, the law firm was generating profits. And when it filed for bankruptcy, all the lawyers kept getting paid. Right, just like lawyers at, or just like employees at General Motors or Delta Airlines when those firms filed for bankruptcy. Because the lawyers at Slater and Gordon weren't partners of the firm, their compensation didn't automatically get cut when the firm wiped out its equity holders. John Morley is a professor of law at Yale Law School. John, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.